are right now in the uh, in the middle of our second week, I should say, of our series, Names of God. And uh, some people ask, why would we be doing a series on the names of God? Well, uh, we are uh, at our church. We want to keep the main things the main things. So why we say we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. It's kind of what Jesus told us to do. And... Uh, so a disciple of Jesus is somebody who follows Jesus, right? That's what a disciple is. We're, we're following Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, where's Jesus going if you're following him? Well, Jesus told us. He, said, he told the Father. He said, he wouldn't even pray to God, his heavenly Father. And he said, you know, I, I, I've come to give you glory, to bring you glory, right? And he enjoys the Father, that amazing relationship. That's what Jesus does. That's his ministry. That's what he does. And if we're following Christ... This is what we're going to be doing. Well, how do you get to know God and bring him glory if you don't know his name? You think about when you get to know somebody, it's one of the first things you do. You introduce them by name. We get to know who they are. So this summer, what we're going to be doing is getting to know God better. And the names of God in Scripture, God is huge, and he reveals himself to us. And he gives us different names, right, that show different parts of his character, attributes of who he is. So like last week, we began with a name in Scripture that is translated as God. We read it as God. That is Elohim, right? And we talked about, we saw in there how powerful that is, that, that he is this almighty God, that he is a God who is a creator, a covenant keeper, Right? He's a God who brings order, creates order out of chaos. Isn't that wonderful? God. Today, we get to take it a step further, and we're going to talk about the most used name that God re- reveals himself to us in Scripture. And that name is in today's memory verse, although I'll have to point it out for you. And it is a long memory verse, but it's not hard, and it is very powerful. It's, it, is, it comes to us from Exodus chapter 3, 15, it says this, Say to the Israelites, the Lord... The God of your fathers. Who is that? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. There you go. What is the name? What is God's name forever? Because here's the name. It's his name forever, which means it is his name even beyond this time on earth, isn't it? When we get to call and talk to God, right, when we get to know him, this is who he is. And in this scripture, it is, is uh, translated as the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, let's look it up ourselves. And it's in Exodus chapter 3. If you have uh, one of our Bibles, that's going to be on page 40. If you forgot your Bible or you need one, got a whole bunch of them right back there by the sound booth in that bookshelf. You can help yourself to them. If you need a Bible, keep it our gift to you. And so uh, we see that in Exodus 40, and we're going to be, our our memory verse was uh, 15, but we're going to go all the way back up to verse 13 is where we're going to start. And I'm going to give you some context that's happening there, is that uh, in Exodus, uh, it's the second book in the the Bible, right? So we see that it's in there. Uh, Genesis really talks about creation all the way down to the people of Israel. Right, so we have all the way from Adam and Eve all the way down. Now you have Jacob, you have you have, um, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. God gives a covenant to them, and then you see the people going into slavery into Egypt, and they're there waiting for their savior. In Exodus, God brings a redeemer, and his name is Moses. And Moses didn't start out well. Forty years he was brought up as an Israelite or as a as a uh, as an Egyptian and and uh, and basically at royalty, and then 
He recognizes that his own people, Israel, were, were slaves and things like this. And he gets angry about that. He was about my age when he did this. And he goes and he murders an Egyptian. And now he's on the lamb. And he runs out and he uh, runs away from all of these problems. And he's just basically tending sheep for about 40 more years. Think about how crazy it is. And then God shows up. In Exodus, the book of Exodus sounds like exit for a reason. Right? It's the people are going to exit slavery and bondage. It is a book of freedom. How cool is that? So God calls this man and he brings, he, he shows up in this bush, starts burning, but it doesn't burn. It's all on fire. And Moses is like, that's weird. I'm going to check that out. And he goes over and God says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And then reveals himself to Moses and he gives his grand plan. He says, Moses, you're going to go set my people free. And Moses is thinking to himself, well, I can't go back there because, <laughs> uh, They're not going to listen to me. I've been gone for 40 years. I ran away. I'm a murderer. So it was kind of like a good place for me to go. So what authority do I go back to? So in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, I love what he just says, suppose, right? He's just open to the idea. Let's just say, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, God. But just suppose that I do what you asked me to do. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? <laughs> and then God, he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And of course, Moses is like, what? <laughs> Just like you, most of you, right? And so verse 15, so that God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you should call me from generation to generation. It makes a very big difference as to the authority that Moses is going to go into. So God made it very clear who he was. And when we say that the Lord, we have it read in there, it says in verse 15, say, that the, say to the Israelites, the Lord has sent me to you. You notice that those words, the letters are all capitalized? You look in your Bible, you ever wondered why sometimes in the Bible the word the Lord is capitalized, all caps, and sometimes it's not? Maybe you haven't, maybe but you have a detail eye, you look in that. It's not because, you know, the, the person that was, uh, you know, just got bored and wanted to put caps in. There's a reason for that. There's different ways, that there's different words that are translated as the Lord in our English language. But they're different in the Hebrew and they carry different meanings. So every time you see it say L-O-R-D, capital, the Lord, The word that's being translated there is this. It's Yahweh. And Yahweh is uh, is a powerful name. Every time we read Yahweh, we are declaring something very important about God. This is the name that he says is his name. His name for generation to generation. This is the name we're supposed to know him as. Now, in older generations, before they had, uh, uh, as they translated this, they had translated as Jehovah, right? And I think we have a better understanding how to translate scripture so that comes with Yahweh. Right? But if you ever heard like Jehovah something or Jehovah's Witness, things like that came from that name. The same, but God revealed himself, and it's Yahweh. And this name tells us a lot about God's character. Now think about Elohim, who was translated as God, right? And that was, it's a great way. God reveals himself first to us in Scripture as Elohim, as God, right? And that was used, what, 2,500 times in the Old Testament, right? Well, God reveals himself to us as, as Yahweh, get this, 6,823 times. Like, he wants us to know him by this name, even more than by the name God. This is important for him to say. And so, when you see capital L-O-R-D, we are talking about 
Yahweh is important. Now, the, the smaller one, that's another name we're going to cover at another time this, later this summer. It's, it's Adonai. But tonight or today, we're going to be talking about Yahweh. Now, Yahweh comes from the root word that, that means to be or to exist. Right? So when you're looking, look in the scripture, you get there, and he says, suppose I was, uh, verse 13, he says, suppose do I say, uh, who should I tell him sent me? And God answers him and says this, this is his name. He says, I am who I am, tell them I am sent you. All right? And then later he says, he says to them, uh, God also said, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, my name is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, for us, Yahweh and I am sound very different, right? But in the Hebrew, they come from the very same beginning root. God has first revealed himself to, by his very nature. He is the one who exists. He exists. And so when we say Yahweh, we are declaring something very profound about God. He is the one who exists. He just exists, Right? This is a powerful thing for us. Think about God. Um, you and me, we have a beginning, right? You had parents, right? All of you? Not just me, right? As far as I know, every person that I've met had parents, right? And their parents, guess what? Had parents. And there was a generation before them that had parents too. In fact, every human that has ever lived, we see that they came from somewhere. It's not like this humanity just existed forever. There's generation to generation to generation to generation, right? Every one of us has a beginning. And when you say God, when God says, I'm the one that exists, he's the one that says, I don't have a beginning. He's in scripture, we find that that, that great lineage of humanity, we find out actually where it began. There's this guy named Adam, and there's a gal named Eve, right? And God created them, and this is where we begin. There wasn't anything before. Humanity didn't just happen, but there was a start to it. And so everything in this world, whether it's people, but you also think of, look at trees. Every tree came from the seed of a tree that came before it, right? Until eventually there had to be a start to it. Or how about this? Every bird came from an egg that came from a bird that came from an egg that came from a bird, right? Which came first? The bird. Where was the first bird? Everything had to have a beginning. And it's not just living things have to have a beginning. We recognize that this world is falling apart, right? Everything is burning out. Even stars, they can't burn forever, right? They just, they have a time, and if you back those stars up eventually, there had to be a point at which they formed or which they started, they ignited, and there had to be something to begin that. What was it? And this is where we go from science because science is we have to take what we can repeat and test and know and observe. And we have to begin to apply a reason. Where did it become from? Where did everything begin And you notice that in that question, there's something that everyone asks then, where did it begin? This entire universe is finite. It is not infinite. There are edges to it. And there is limits to its age, and there are limits to its size. And these things are massive concepts for us to understand because we see how how ancient and how ginormous the universe can be but it had a beginning. It doesn't just self-exist. Nothing lasts forever. 
Yahweh is different. You understand when we say Yahweh, the one that is, we're saying some, we are making a declaration that he is the one that is even outside of this. There was no beginning to Yahweh. But he just is. He was, he is, he is to come, he just is. There was never a time where Yahweh was just a little boy running around the hills of somewhere. Right? Yahweh is. There was no beginning for him. He just simply is. In fact, anything that is finite, right, that has edges. It's like this book, the Bible, right? It's got, you take any book, right? It's, it's got finite. So we just take all of the universe, all of time, all of space, and put its borders right around this book right here. We could see it, right? Everything that we know, everything that's been created, everything that exists fits inside of that somewhere. And you and me, we're in here somewhere. I'm like a little period or something somewhere, right? I'm, a, I'm part of it. And every single word on this page can't even imagine life outside of that page. Everything it knows is being bound in a book. That's everything. That's its frame of reference. Can you imagine trying to take even a character, like, right, like a word from this page, and try to explain to it life outside of the book? It couldn't comprehend it. It has no frame of reference. But God exists outside the book. And God is bigger than this entire universe. Right? When we say Yahweh, we are recognizing, one, his enormity, his infinite nature, the fact that he is bigger than us and that we will never be able to fully comprehend who he is. And the second thing, we recognize our smallness. When we say Yahweh, he is who he is, we recognize that we are from the generation to the generation, that we have a beginning, we are finite, we exist in these pages. There is, we are part of this this created world, and we can't really fathom anything outside of it. And that's okay. But how can something that's contained in here recognize there's something that's out here? Well, the infinite has got to reveal itself, doesn't he? Right? That, that's the thing. It's like God somehow, God could have just made all of this and just set it aside, created the universe, and walked away. So deists believe that's what God did. And God could have done that. But he didn't. And we'll talk about that in a second. But how fantastic is it? See, we think this universe is huge and ancient and all these things, right? We think our lives are so big or our problems are so massive. When we say Yahweh, we recognize there was one that is so outside of it. He is so much bigger. And that gives me hope. See, Yahweh is the one who is that is. Which means this. He is not dependent upon us. So we didn't create Yahweh. Yahweh created us. See, Yahweh doesn't need us. He existed before anything existed. But we need him. There's something very important about that. What a, what a statement that you say 6,000 some odd times in Scripture, over and over and over again, that God is the big one, the one who just is. He's not dependent upon us. Which he's not dependent upon us, and we didn't create him at right? He's not codependent. It's not as though somehow if we don't give him enough worship, God loses power. He's not going to be able to do his thing. It's like if, if we don't give him enough glory, then God somehow hurts some way. God is, which means that we're not going to manipulate him. And how nice is that? Aren't you happy that God is beyond being manipulated? That there's nothing he really needs from us. So we don't have any leverage to corrupt him. And we would corrupt him, wouldn't we, if we could? Look at every pantheon in the world, right? All these other religions, 
right? Even the Egyptians had their pantheon. All their gods had parents, right? All their gods had these things that they wanted from people. All their gods you read about had ways that the people could go and could manipulate those gods to get them to do what they wanted to do. Our God just is. Which recognize that our attempts to manipulate God are futile. But also, that means that our God is, he's got this character that gives us peace. He is who he is. Now, based upon that, let me give you five, just uh, in scripture, just five observations about Yahweh that we gain in scripture. The first one that we find is that Yahweh is the truth revealing God. That's one of the things that Yahweh is. And before we say what is, you know, to reveal truth, we have to ask, what is truth? Right? Pilate asked Jesus that. People have been asking this all the time. Before I became a Christian, I had to ask, what is truth? Right? What is it that truth even is? And you know there's an answer to that. We know what truth is. Here's the answer. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. There's your philosophy class for the day. You know what that means? Truth tells the truth about reality. If it's something is something way, then it says it's the way that it is. That's what truth is. And I think all of us get this. It makes sense. For example, if I say this is a Bible, and in reality this is a Bible, then I'm telling the truth. But if I say this is a glass of orange juice, and in reality this is not a glass of orange juice, it doesn't matter how much I believe it's a glass of orange juice. It's not going to quench my thirst, right? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, here's a crazy thing about God. How can he be the truth-revealing God? Well, God is actually one step even behind truth. He is reality itself. Right? He created this existence. Right? It's a certain way that he made it, and he's even a level beyond that. He's the one that made reality. He is the maker of reality, its very self. See, when people, when we're from the inside, can you imagine like if one of these words in this book, the Bible, was just trying to explain the rest of the book to us, just one word, and then try to explain the rest of our lives to us? We say, you're vastly unqualified. But if you have somebody from the outside who knows they actually wrote this, they can explain the whole thing to you. See, that's the difference between religion and God who's revealing himself to us. Religions are created by people that are trying to say, we're observing enough around us that this is how we believe God must be. It's like something from in here trying to project truth out this way. But how on earth could they possibly know? This is why it's so important that God is the revealer of truth. He is, he is the reality behind reality. He's the one who's able to then say this is what reality is and be accurate. So we find this in Exodus 4.22. It says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord Yahweh says, right? And we find this lots of places in Scripture. The authority that, that, that uh, Moses is given about saying, it says, thus saith the Lord. You ever heard those words? You never hear it in Scripture, thus saith Elohim, thus saith God. It's always thus saith the Lord, thus saith Yahweh. God says, why? Because he is the one who is. He is the reality behind reality. He can reveal truth. And he is the only one that's truly qualified to do so. And so... We find that he is the God who gives us truth. And how does he do that? Well, there are some ways that we find in Scripture that he does. Jeremiah 1.9, I think, is a really interesting one. Here's this prophet who's going to go speak 
right? And he's saying, how do I know? I'm going to make sure that I'm telling people, because he had a hard message. Jeremiah had a hard message for his people. And you know what? He's probably had some, some inner bitterness and stuff that was going on towards the people too, because they were being super naughty, right? And it says, then the Lord Yahweh reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I, Yahweh, have put my words in your mouth. See, there's a difference between a person that is, that is wise or is a philosopher or something like this and a true prophet of God. When God spoke through the prophets, he revealed himself through them. He spoke through them. This is why the prophets are different. This is why we don't throw around the word, I'm a prophet, real lightly. Because when you claim to be a prophet, you say that God put his words in your mouth. Perfect truth. This is why in Scripture, if somebody claimed to be a prophet and that 100% was absolutely proven to be true, they murdered that person. But it wasn't murder. They were, they were killed out of justice. Because God said he is true. And God reveals through the prophets what is truth. And if you haven't had God put his truth into you, you don't claim to be a prophet. You can say, I've got ideas. That's fine. Right? I'm a pastor. I am not a prophet. Right? God has not like, touched me and said, these are inspired words, Aaron, for your people. <laughs> I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to give you a message and things like this. But if I say something that is contradiction to what God has given to the prophets, I'm not telling you the truth. Truth is what corresponds to reality, and God tells reality, and so we listen to the prophets. We also recognize that the prophet, the greatest prophet that we find in, in, in is, is the prophecy of Scripture. Even in itself, it testifies, it says that everything in here is inspired. God breathed. It tells us in 2 Timothy. God spoke Scripture. This is why we call it the Holy Bible. It is different. This is God's revelation of truth to us. This is God opening up our eyes to the reality beyond this world, to everything even behind it, to say, this is who I am. This is not a bunch of people that were in a room that kind of discussed and got around and said, who do we think God should be? God just said, this is who I am. And he inspired the prophets. And so we listen to them. And he's given us his inspired word. And this becomes our authority then, doesn't it? It is truth. It is his truth. It accurately represents reality because it comes from the one who made reality. This is important for us. So God speaks to us. He wants us to know truth. Isn't this amazing? God could have just created this universe and walked away, but he didn't. He goes into the universe and says, I want you to know me. And he reveals himself to us. In Exodus 3, again, he says, I have appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Here's something cool about God. Is he doesn't, didn't reveal himself in his entirety. Abraham knew God, but he didn't know him by name. He knew him by attribute, by God Almighty. Isaac and Jacob, that's how God revealed himself to him. But God never told them his name. It's important for us to see that God revealed enough about them that they had enough for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to say, we, we know enough that we can trust you. We have faith. But God wasn't just content enough for people just to know about him. He wants his people to know him. And so he continued to reveal himself, open up more about who he is, right? So we could get to know him better. And he continued to do that all the way through the prophets until we see him reveal himself perfectly in his son. He is a truth revealing God. 
and he makes himself known to us. He wants to be known. A good example of how the difference of, of knowing somebody and knowing about them is like, uh, I'm a pastor, obviously, and so people in Estes, a lot of them know me, but they don't come to our church. And so sometimes I'll be at the store, I'll be at Safeway or something like that, and somebody will come up to me in line whilst I'm waiting to get my groceries checked out. And they'll say, oh, you're a pastor at that church. And I'll say, well, yes, I am. They know something about me, something that is true. I am. And based upon what they know about me, this attribute that I'm a pastor, they'll do something. They'll, they'll tell me that uh, they'll need prayer or they'll tell me a praise or something they can have or they'll tell me a need that they might have, right, that the church can help them with. Sometimes they tell me how awful they think I am, right, something. But based upon an attribute that they know about me, that's, but they don't know my name. Some of them do, but they really don't know me. You know, like my dad, like I was growing up, my dad knew me really well, and he had like nicknames for me, right, like little bud, <laughs> things like that, like, he, names that he knew me by. The people who know you best know your names better than anyone. Like Amy's got nicknames for me that you're never going to know. <laughs> right? <laughs> you just don't know me well enough. God says, I want you to know me. Know my name. And he continues to reveal himself to us. Recognize that this God, reality himself, truth, revealing God, reveals himself in such a way so that we can get to know him. Which tells us something really cool about this truth revealing God is that He's not just a thing that existed forever. Right, we live in Estes, so we live where it's beautiful, and we see these mountains that have just been here for a long time, right? They're ancient. And we see rocks that have been around before we were ever existed, and they're going to be here long after we're gone. Or we can still see the stars here. There's not enough light pollution that we could look out and see the stars, and, you know, just so far away, and their beauty and just their glory and how awesome they are, right? And they've been around for a long time, and we can say, wow, they're so huge. But I'll tell you, as beautiful as amazing those those things are that have lasted for so long, they're just things. Like I've never seen a star write a poem. Right? I've never seen a mountain do an act of kindness. They're just things. They don't live. But our God, who is truth, isn't just a thing out there. He's not just some dead force out there in the in the universe. He's a living God. And things that live are always superior to those that aren't living. Always. Think about it. You have the capacity not just to do math, but to care for people, to bring beauty into this world, to bring creative energy into this world. Right? There's something amazing and spectacular about life. And our God isn't just a, a, a thing that exists. He is a, he's an entity, a being that exists. He's a God of life. He can say, I am that I am. And he reveals himself in truth as not just something in a personal force, but as a being, as a person, which is magnificent. Because only a person like this is capable of love. And he loves you. And he reveals that in truth. That's just who he is. And not only is God a truth-revealing God, he is the truth behind truth, the reality behind it, but you also see that he's holy. He's the holy one. Now, our world has no idea what holiness is. Really, but we do. We just don't call it holiness. Holiness would be set apart, separate, different, right? If something's be holy, it's, it's not like the other things. So you've heard me, if you've been here for a while, different uh, illustrations of that, like your toothbrush is holy, right? It's holy unto thee. No one else gets to use it. You don't use it to clean the toilet. It's yours, Right? But this last week, I had an illustration of something that was holy in my house that I had forgotten about for a while. It was these, these plates that we have kept in, in a closet 
under like lock and key and armed guard because they were my wife's great grandmother's plates, like china that they got she got on like her wedding day or something like this. And we have never used them. The only thing I have done is very carefully dusted them like once a year and placed them back on there, right? These are holy plates, right? They're set apart, they're set aside for something different. Like if I wanted a, like a, a microwave burrito, Right? I don't just take out one of those plates and stick it in the microwave and heat up my burrito because there would be wrath Right, if I did that. These are holy. We understand that God is not just like anything else. I think oftentimes we, we toss his name around we, like he's some other kind of just another being, just another thing that's out there. No, no, he is different. And he needs to be treated with, with respect. In heaven, uh, we recognize this is what's happening. I mean, who better to know God's nature than those who get to see him with his own, their own eyes, right? So the prophet Isaiah, right, he was, he was speaking to his people during a real rough time. And I think Isaiah was just down in, in the dumps because bad stuff was happening. God says, I want to show you something. So, so God brings Isaiah in the spirit up to heaven and gives him a, a picture of the throne room of heaven. It's fascinating, and I encourage you to read it. It's in Isaiah 6. But this is what we have. It. The angels are in the throne room. They're flying around the throne of God. They, th- these particular angels have six wings, and they're covering their eyes, and they're covering their feet, not to offend God or anything like that. They're not even standing in the, on the holy ground, and they're flying there. And this is what they're saying to each other. That's what it says. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Different! <laughs> you are magnificent! See, God's name is not just to be trifled with. He is not just some small being out there. He is different and separate. And to use his name like using China to heat up a burrito is just wrong. He is not common. And therefore, that was even commanded, God's Ten Commandments. What does he say to do? Keep my name holy. Are we revering God the way that we ought to? Or do we just toss his name around willy-nilly here and there? Do you recognize when you say Yahweh, you are declaring his majesty and might and infinite in his entire world in your tininess? That's something to respect. Think about who God is. He is holy. And I think in Jesus, when he told us to pray, look at what Jesus said. He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. That's how we begin. Holy is your name. May your name be kept holy. That's what that means. That's what, when we start to pray, when you even begin to talk to God, you're not just talking to any other being out there. You're not praying to the universe, right? You are not talking to like some saint that's going to relate. You are talking to God Almighty. Holy, different. And you start by the fact of reverence and you say, you are infinite and I am not. You're holy. I'm common. There's billions of us. But there's one of you. We start with the right attitude. He is holy. But there's something amazing about this holy God is he's also the one that makes us holy. He makes us different. Right? He calls us his holy people. He sets us aside, sets us apart. How cool is that? Third thing we find about God is this, is that he is also righteous. And I know that's a church word, right? Righteous is not a deep philosophical concept. It just means this. If you do what is right, you are righteous. Righteous people just do what is right. If you don't do what is right, you're not righteous. You're wrongness, I guess. 
And I'll tell you, I'm very wrongness. I am not righteous because I have sinned, and so have you. And we all know it, right? We're not righteous, but God always does what is right. And why does God always do what is right? Is it because there is some huge standard of right and wrong over this creation, right? Some standard of right and wrong that God has got to fit into. And as long as he fits into that, if he's contained within the idea of what is right and wrong, then he will continue to be righteous. Is that what, why God is righteous? No. Let's break our brains for a second. God is bigger than righteousness itself. See, God is the existent one. Even right and wrong only exist because God exists. If God didn't exist, there would be no morality at all. <laughs> because there would be nothing to exist in morality. And so why are things that we consider right and wrong, why are they right and wrong? Where does morality come from? It comes from God. See, God's very nature is the reality behind this. So the true of what is truly moral aligns with who God is. Which means that in order for God to do something that's not righteous, he would have to stop being himself. Which is something that cannot happen. Therefore, God is always righteous in everything he does. And everything he does is always righteous by nature. If he does it, it is right. His standard of morality is perfect. In our standard of morality, what happened is we went to the the tree of of good and evil, our first ancestors, and they ate from that. It wasn't that they ate the fruit that was wrong. What happened is it says their eyes were open, and all of a sudden they knew they could tell right from, like they could knew the knowledge of good and evil, right? What does that mean? Like before they didn't know between right and wrong? That's not it. They knew it was wrong to eat the apple. What they didn't know is before that, every time God said, this is what you should do, they agreed with God. They could see morality accurately. They knew the truth. When we ate from that fruit, that poison severed our ability to be able to see truth for what it is. And ever since then, every person has been creating what they think is right and wrong in their own eyes. It's interesting for us to know before the flood. It says that the world was, was wicked, filled with violence, and people offered, did wickedness all the time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Before Sodom and Gomorrah, the people in the city did all these kind of wicked things, and it says in there that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. These were people who were self-righteous. They walked around. They didn't think of themselves as dirty, horrible, awful sinners deserving of flood or fire. They thought of themselves as very, very moral. And don't we live in a world today filled with violence and awfulness where people do what is right in their own eyes and we are just in a mess? See, our morality is not tied to truth. It is not a reflection of who God is. Which is why for us as Christians, one of the things that we do is we bend our knee and we call him Lord, which is why Yahweh is called Lord. He has the right to tell us what is right and wrong because he is true. He is righteous in a way that we could not possibly even fathom, but we can trust it. His morality supersedes ours. In fact, when our morality differs from his, our morality is a lie. And that lie corrupts us from the very soul out. And it hurts us, it hurts our families, it hurts our nation, it hurts our world. It ends up in violence and darkness and depression and despair. And Jesus came and God decided not to destroy us and let us just live in it and wallow in it. He came to save us from that lie because he is righteous. What we see here in Psalm eleven seven, it says this, For the Lord Yahweh is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face. God created the world, and he wants the world to operate in a certain way. He loves that. And here's the great promise, that those who do what is right will see his face. Now, here's the bad news. You and me didn't do what was right. And that's why Christ is so important. We see there that because he is right and he always does what is right, we see that he, has the, he is a, the authority to judge. In fact, here we see in Daniel nine fourteen. 
He says, the Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. And we didn't obey him. Now this came from a prophet that, if you remember, he was a teenager, living in you know, privilege, and all of a sudden gets taken captive, sees his family murdered, all that kind of stuff, taken to a foreign country, all these things. And instead of being like, God, how dare you do this, like most of us do when bad things happen, he's like, well, actually, yeah, we kind of deserved it. Here's the thing, is God's not going to do anything that's not right. And it's hard for us as people because sometimes we suffer. And how many of us, when bad things happen in our lives, the first thing we do is blame God? We recognize that when God does something, it is right. Just by the very nature that he did it. And he's never going to do anything wrong, so we can trust him. And he has the right to judge. He's not a criminal behind the bench. He is righteous. And because he's righteous, he has the opportunity, he has the right to expect us to be, to be righteous. Look what it says in Leviticus 19. It says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel. That's all of us, all the people. It says to them, be holy because I, the Lord Yahweh, your God, am holy. Right? And this is talking about being morally pure. Be different. He's calling us out of this world. Right? He says, be a different way. There's a different way to live. Because of who I am, there's a different way to live. So we see in God is not just the one who is righteous himself. He is the one who makes us righteous too, isn't he? He gives us a new chance, a fresh start when we're born again in his kingdom and we begin to follow Christ, learn to obey everything he commanded because what he commanded is righteous. It says that he works from the inside of us to the outside, transforms our heart and minds, purifies us, transforms us into righteous people. He is righteous and he is the one that makes us righteous. That is Yahweh. Fourth thing we know about Yahweh is he is the Savior. In Scripture, we recognize that we've all sinned. We're not righteous. Isn't it interesting that in Scripture, over and over again, it is Yahweh is the one who is always concerned about our redemption. Right? Let's go to Genesis 3. The very first sin, we find this. But the Lord, Yahweh, called to the man, where are you? Where did that happen? The very first sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And were they going back to God? No, they were hiding. And who is it that goes after them? It wasn't, you know, the Lord is my shepherd didn't go out after them. It was God, the one who exists, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy. Yahweh went out. Isn't that amazing? That the one who is righteous and, and holy is the one who would come down and would say, where are you? You know, he didn't just stop with that. Yahweh is the one, all the way through Scripture, is the Lord, the one who constantly is, is creating this plan, revealing his plan to, to save us. In Isaiah 12, the prophet, he just is just amazed, and he says, Surely Elohim is my salvation. God is my salvation. And I will, I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh himself is my strength. Right? He is my defense, has become my salvation. It's an important thing for us to remember here. First, Yahweh and Elohim are the same being. God and the Lord are the same. That's important. But get this. He says, in Scripture, Elohim was used to describe all kinds of different gods too. It wasn't just the one true God. Even in Scripture, it says, don't worship false gods, don't worship false Elohims. But never in Scripture is Yahweh applied to anyone other than the one true God. That's him. And so he says, yeah, God is my salvation. But let me make clear as to which God I'm talking about. It is Yahweh, Yahweh himself. Your salvation comes with the one who is not bound by anything else, who is one who is self-existent. He's not dependent upon anything. Your salvation comes from the one who is strong enough, who is behind all of creation, the one who is himself righteous. Doesn't that give you peace? He is not a weak savior. 
Now, think about all the terms that we find in Yahweh so far. Yahweh is truth, right, and the one who reveals truth. Yahweh is holy and the one who makes us holy. Yahweh is righteous and the one who makes us righteous. Yahweh is Savior and the one who saves us, which lets us know the fifth thing, that Yahweh is Jesus. Isn't that fast? Does that give you tingles like I got goosebumps? Just saying it. It's just God, Yahweh, put on flesh. The eternal. Can you imagine you write a book and then you're like, boop, and I become a word in that book? Then you're the whole thing. You're outside the whole thing. You have a life. You might have 50,000 books, right? But you become one, just this little tiny thing. That God contained himself, just squished himself into humanity. Now look at who Jesus reveals himself. First, Jesus is truth. Look what he says in John, the Gospel of John, 14, 6. He says this, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not say, I know the way. I'll tell you the truth so that you can have life. Because that's what a prophet would do. Right? That's what a religious person would do. Jesus doesn't claim that he's got, like, there's this truth out there. I'm going to point you to it. He says, I'm the reality behind all of that. You want life? Boom! Me! And I'm going to tell you who I am. That's why I'm true. Because I reflect me perfectly. That's what it means. The way, the truth, the life. That's why there's no other way back to God. He is God. Oh! How cool! You understand, like, all of creation, all of it's just groaning, waiting. We're so broken. We're looking for the way out. And we can't figure it out. So God came in. And he said to us, here I am. Here I am. Come to me. All you who are broken, all you who are weary. I'm going to give you rest. That's what he said. God, God came. If you don't get this, how much God loves you. How dedicated God is to you and to love you and to your salvation. How amazing God is. And how completely terrifying Jesus is. Look what it says here in the, that God is not just, he's not just the life, but he's also holy. Right? This is a funny story from Jesus' life. So Jesus was doing ministry, but he's, he's God. He's Yahweh, right? And he's also a man. However that works, blows up our brains. And he was doing work, and his disciples were doing work. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's making bread sandwiches for everybody, right? All this kind of stuff. And it's just hard work. And it was nonstop, people, all the time. He's like, I want to get in a boat. We're going to go take a little break, right? So they get in a boat, and they cross Galilee, and they go to the place where there's no Jews. They go to Gentile country. And the best place to go where there's not going to be Jews in Gentile country is where they raise pigs because pigs are unclean. Jews couldn't be around them perfect spot so jesus shows up in gentile country gets off the boat right and there's pigs all over and have you ever been to a pig farm it's stinky right so he gets off this boat stinkiness there's no there's not even a lot of gentiles around because it's stinky it's pig territory right just a couple farmers that have to be there because they're paid and there's this one dude that's there who has got an entire he's not just possessed by one demon he has an army of demons inside of him an army now think about in Scripture, like one angel can level an entire one of our armies, no problem. This dude has an entire army of demons inside of him. And so this village tried to like control this guy, tie him up with chains, all this kind of stuff. They couldn't kill him. They couldn't keep, he would just break through those and beat people to, you know, to death and all that. He was a bad dude. Here he is, army of demons inside, living amongst the pigs. 
Jesus shows up, walks off the boat. This guy, this how all these army of demons is like, oh, and they runs over to Jesus. And I imagine the disciples are like, oh, I thought we were having a weekend off, right? <laughs> this guy runs up to him and he says this, what, have you, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I'll tell you, the enemy of God knows exactly who Jesus is. How much more of us? Think about that. And here's a crazy thing, that Jesus is so holy, he doesn't have to even fight like the angels fight. There wasn't like this big battle. It's not like Jesus was like, what the Right? <laughs> Nothing. He just said, demons, boom, be gone. Get into those pigs. And then the demons fled. They're like, oh, and they ran into the pigs. And they were so freaked out, they ran over a cliff and died. Stupid demons. That is the power of Yahweh. He shows up. That's why we look at, like, is Satan, like, really Jesus' adversary? <laughs> no. I mean, when was the last time you were afraid of, like, I don't know, like a word on a page? When was the last time you were afraid of, like, like a, a gnat? Like, God is, Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. It's why the whole army surrendered without even fighting. They knew it was like, will you come to destroy us? Because he could have. He didn't even have to will them out of existence. Yahweh could have stopped willing them to exist. Think on that for a minute. He is the Holy One. He is different. He is, he is, that's why we keep the name Jesus holy. That's why it's a great offense to us when somebody misuses his holy name. He is amazing. And we need to honor him as for who he is. Jesus isn't just holy, but he's righteous. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, well, okay. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What are you saying? Don't use God's grace as a license to just sin. But if you do, and you will, know that you've got the greatest lawyer in all of history. Right? Jesus is up there. He is your lawyer, your advocate before God the Father. So when you sin, you don't get condemned. Because Jesus says, uh, your honor, paid for. That's what he does. And he can do that. Why? Now, think about when you hire a lawyer, say you have to go to court, probably the first place you want to start when you ask, you interview lawyers who are going to go for you, or say, are you a, convic- are you a criminal? Right? Because if your lawyer is a criminal, he can't advocate for you. That's like the worst thing, right? That totally, if you are a criminal, you cannot practice law, right? Why? Because if that criminal walked before the judge, he wouldn't be able to represent you. He'd be thrown into prison himself. Jesus had to be righteous so he can defend you and me. And he is righteous, so he can defend you and me. He is the only one who's qualified. But I think it's fascinating, completely amazing, which means this. A lot of religions have other prophets and people that they look to to say, I'm counting on that person to defend me. Maybe Joseph Smith, right, or maybe Muhammad or something like this. People, all people have sinned. There is no one who can advocate for you before the Father except for the one who is righteous. That's why we have hope. It's powerful for us. Jesus isn't just righteous, but then because he is righteous, he is qualified, he can be our savior. And look what happened when Jesus showed up in this world, right? God sent an angel down to Joseph, and he said, you're going to name him something because I'm showing up. Yahweh's come in the world, and I want my name to be correct. And that's what he says. Your wife, Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. Jesus is savior. When asked, why did you come? Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Right? I came to heal the sick, right? those who were spiritually sick, most of all. right? Jesus, when he talked with Nicodemus, was this, this wise guy that uh, was a, a Jewish religious leader, interviews Jesus, and he says, I know that you have come, but I don't know what 
you're all about, right? And, and John 3 is where this interview happens. Jesus explains his mission to him. He said, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. For actually he goes on to say that the world, anyone who doesn't believe in him already stands condemned. God doesn't even have to condemn people. We've already done it ourselves. But God doesn't want us to be condemned. And that's why he sent Jesus. That's why God himself came to the world. He died on the cross for our sins because he's the only one who could. He, he can pay the penalty for our sins because he didn't have sins himself to pay for. And the reality he could pay for more than one person's sins means he was more than just a man. People only have one life. And the penalty for sin is life. One perfect, even if Jesus was just a human and that's all he was, he, if he died on the cross, he could die for one person's sins. Wouldn't that be great? But because he's infinite, he has infinite life because he is Yahweh. When he died on the cross, he died for infinite sins. And I know that I've sinned a lot, but I haven't sinned infinitely yet. I know all of humanity has sinned a lot, but we haven't sinned infinitely yet. Which means that all sins have been paid for, past, present, future, that there is hope for us today. Jesus is our Savior. The one who's qualified to save us. And that means, if we circle all the way back, that Jesus is Yahweh. He even claims himself. John 14, one of his apostles, Philip, was uh, talking to him, and Philip at the same time was still thinking like we do. Like, how could we possibly see the infinite God in a human form that's just as a person, as a real man? And so he's talking to Jesus. He's like, all right, we've been with you for so long. You're the Messiah. When are you going to show us God? And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? After I've been with you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine just... I'm the one that the angels fear to be around. I'm sitting and having bread with them. It says in Hebrews 1, it says this, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Jesus is not just a suggestion. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a way. He is Yahweh. And that is why we worship him. And because of who he is, that is why we have confidence in his ability to save us. So today we've talked about quite a few things. Right? First thing that we talked about is that we see who Yahweh is. That Yahweh is the Lord. He is a self-existent God. Bigger than us, beyond us. We see that Yahweh is the true, holy, righteous Savior. And in that we see that Yahweh is Jesus. So the question is for you, do you know him? That God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, and he has the ability to do it. And he's telling the truth because he is truth himself, right? And this way is reliable because he is the way. He is the truth himself. He is the reality of that way. Salvation is for you. And if you have not accepted his offer of salvation, it is for you. You might feel like I am too dirty. I am too unrighteous. I am too hopeless. I'll tell you this. You have not sinned infinitely. There is hope for you today. But you have to receive it. In the scripture it says we receive God's grace, right? That salvation through faith. God doesn't even require anything of you. It's just faith. It's just trusting who he is. He says, I want that faith. We need to express that faith. And so we believe, we trust him, even if we have doubts. We're going to say, I'm going to trust this God. He's given me enough to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Right? And it says to believe and to repent. I'm going to turn my life and my, by faith I'm going to start actually obeying him, saying you are the truth and your ways are better than my ways. I'm going to follow you. 
right? That's repentance and confession. It's agreeing with God, saying, God, you are, Jesus is God. And he is my Lord and Savior. I'm following him. Me and him, we're going to be together. Right? Confession, repentance. We have baptism. We're buried in water, right? Words we recognize. We, we, we stand up publicly. We say, I am a person that is sinful and I'm dead and my sins have been killed in Christ and I've been buried just like Christ has been buried. And I'm raised into a new life in Christ. And then we are discipled. We express faith and discipleship, continuing to follow Christ every single day. One more step at a time. If you need to make that decision, right, you don't wait. I don't see why you would wait. You know, we're going to take an offering, we're going to sing a song, all this stuff. If you need to make the decision, I'm going to be right there in the back. If you need to make the decision, you come talk to me and I'll help you. We'll take some steps of faith. We'll walk with you through. We'll help you grow in Christ. It's what we do. And not just a point of salvation. We don't drop our babies. We'll help you grow up in this healthy family of faith right here. Tell you what, for the rest of us that are followers of Jesus, we always have next steps, right? We want to follow him, which means we can't sit still. So take out your connection card. I got next steps for you. Some things that we can do this week so we can be following the Lord and growing in him. So you want to look on the back. There's some things, some practical things that you can do this week to take steps of faith to grow in this in Christ, to begin following Yahweh. And here's some things that you can do. The first one here is maybe you want to do this week I commit to you. I say, uh, I want to memorize Exodus 3.15. You want to know the Lord, want to know him by name, know who he is. Maybe you begin there, recognize that this is not some new fad, that God has been around for a very long time, and he's, he's set apart to save us. Maybe you begin there. Or how about this? Maybe you want to do is you want to read the Gospel of Matthew. You want to see when, when Yahweh shows up? If you ever want to meet God and see like, what he was like, he showed up. Read about his life. That's the Gospel of Matthew. Read what he said. What did he teach? See what the truth is. Or maybe what you need to do right now is you need to confess. Confession means I'm going to agree with God. Maybe there are things in your life right now. You disagree with God on something. You say, I know what the teaching of the church and the Bible says about certain issues, and I disagree with God. Guess what? You're wrong. You confess. You say, God, I still disagree with you, but I recognize that I'm wrong. That's where I begin with. You have to begin to help change my heart because God deals with reality, doesn't he? And he can change you in truth. And so you begin confessing this week. Or maybe you look in your life and you recognize there are ways that you're supposed to be living in Scripture and you're not doing it. And you say, I'm living in contradiction in the way that your holiness, the way that you've called me to live. And you say, God, I'm going to confess that, that I'm not living right. And I need help. Because <laughs> if you've ever tried to live right on your own power, it gets frustrating, doesn't it? So you confess. So you say, God, I need help. And you start with this, agreeing with God. There's a better way. There's a different way. Maybe that's what you need to start with this week. Say, God, I'm going to start choosing to follow you instead of my own way. I want to live in the truth. Or how about this? Maybe you need to have a ministry interview. We started this, minute, this uh, service with this. You, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, but you're also a minister of God. You have work to do. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that your role in the church is to show up and fill a pew once in a while or a seat, right? Maybe give an offering. He has so much more for you than that. It says in Scripture that we're a body and that you're a part of that body and you have work to do and you have, you have esteem, you have value. Like you bring something very important to our work here. And if you are not work, working, if you're not serving Christ and, and the people in this world through the church and as part of the church, then there's more for you. And if you don't even know where to start, that's what the church is here for. That's one of my jobs. That's right? one of the things I love to do is I will help you discover what it is that God made you for and help you connect in the right place, right? 
We don't make splings pinkies here, okay? We'll help figure out what it is you are to do in the body of Christ and get you to do that. I'll tell you, it's the best, most awesome feeling ever when you start doing that. If you need to start, let us know. Give us your contact information. We'll get a hold of you. We'll help you start serving and start building this amazing kingdom for the glory of God, the eternal one. So make your commitments here in a second. We'll take our offering as we do. Take these connection cards along with your tithing offerings. Drop it in the offering basket. All right? Before we do that, however, let's just take a moment. Let's pray for these as we commit ourselves to God. Heavenly Father, you're good, you're powerful, you're wonderful, and you're bigger than our brains. We could not invent you even if we had tried. Lord, and even after you reveal yourself to us, we recognize that that the greatest minds of history all combined together, we still fall short of truly encapsulating everything that you are. But you revealed enough of yourself to us to know we can know you. And we can call you by name. And we could come to you in your amazing attributes. You are Elohim. You are God. You are powerful. You are the covenant keeper. You put order into chaos. You are Yahweh. You are the one who just exists. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. You are the Holy One. You are the truth. Father, help us to know you better. Let us serve you better. Pray this church would grow in truth and love. And Father, you would build your kingdom in our hearts and in this space and in this community for your glory. Lord, I take these commitments that we've made today. Don't make us self-righteous people, God. But instead, Father, I pray that you'd help us follow hard after Jesus so we could bring you glory. And Father, we can experience who you are in a better way. Set us free from ourselves and set us free for your kingdom. Father, I pray for the tithes and the offerings that we have the privilege of bringing to you. Build your kingdom through them, Father, as you build faith in us. We ask all of this in the wonderful name of our Savior, our Yahweh Jesus. Amen.